Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Good morning. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Good morning, church. Good morning. Sorry, I just saw a baby walk in. If we woke up baby back there, I'm sorry. But yeah, yeah, you knew what was coming when you walked in on the sermon time there. Well, we're so excited to be with you. Those that are joining us online, hello to you. We have a lot to celebrate this morning. Um, you know, a couple different things. Uh, hockey is back. And we need to pray for our Blue Jackets. They need some help lately. But uh, hockey's back. We're celebrating that. We also want to celebrate uh, today is National Alabama Lost Sunday. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how many of you, uh, I know we were at the uh, bowling alley over in Pickerington last night and caught the end of that game. And there were lots of shouts of joy going on uh, at the end of that last night. For all you Alabama fans, we mourn with you too. But um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so as we're here today. Uh, as we uh, continue uh, to, to celebrate all sorts of different things that we are celebrating, of course, God's goodness in our life. And we've been doing that by a sermon series. This is the second week. <laughs> yeah, so excited. And uh, the name of the sermon series, if you weren't here last week, makes no sense at all. It's called God's Electric Power Company, which is total gibberish. It means absolutely nothing. It has no reference really to anything except that it's a nice little device to remember the order of the books in the Bible, and specifically that of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So now you can always remember. If you're ever sitting there going, which one comes which? You can just remember God's Electric Power Company. In fact, that was something I learned at one of my VBSs when I was young. And for some reason, it has stuck with me, even to the ends of my days. So nice little fun fact to remember. But as we're jumping in, we've been looking at each and every one of these books. And we're kind of looking at them from a big point of view. Instead of focusing in maybe on one or two verses, we're really kind of looking at the overall picture of why these were written in the first place. You know, what is the purpose of writing? And when it was such a great time intensive thing, very, very powerful and very expensive and very something that was very labor intensive to do. And then not only that, why were these books so copied and sent to other places that different places around the world would have copies of the book that was sent or a letter that was sent to the Ephesian church? And so we're going to be looking at that in our time here today. But first, let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, the Lord our rock our Redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're doing God's Electric Power Company. Today is the second book of this order. It's called Ephesians. Now, the first thing to do is to remember, of course, when these letters are sent, they're actually sent to a people and a place, right? And keep this in mind that places across the, the Mediterranean Sea, even though they were all kind of conquered by Rome and Rome was in charge, they were very different, very unique from each other. And so the issues that are going on in one place may be very, very different than the issue that's going on in another place. And so, in fact, one of the big things that we got to do first is just look at 
where Ephesus was. Where was this city, this place of these people that Paul is writing to? And where was this church start, if you will, that started? And so we got a map here. Uh, so this is a map. You can see that's Turkey right there, for the most part, a little bit of Greece. That big red dot, if you will, is actually, you can go there now. It's still the Archaeological Museum of Ephesus. You can go see that. There's some, some, some ruins there on the hillside and different things like that. And uh, it was a huge city. Absolutely enormous city, full of wealth, full of all sorts of different things. Lots of trade would go through. They had, had the Silk Road actually went through it, so they had all sorts of uh, marketing and availability uh, through that and all sorts of financial things. They had all sorts of access to the sea and trade ports. They had uh, all sorts of, uh, they had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which we'll have a picture of here in just a few minutes. Uh, I mean, it was just a thriving metropolis and a very, very tight-knit community. And so uh, they had some different things that were unique about them than maybe some other places uh, in the Roman world at the time. But this is where it was, and so you can imagine Paul is writing from somewhere to this people. So last week we looked that it was Galatia. It was a, not a specific church, but a, an area of churches is that actually that book was written to. But this one is written to a very specific people, a very specific place at a very specific time, and I would say for a very specific reason. And so, of course, what is that reason? One of the first things you want to know is, well, why did Paul, of course, write this? Now, to answer that, I think you actually got to jump, first of all, to another book. And that is the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, if you remember, it's the first book after the Gospels. It actually records when the disciples, you know, Jesus ascends to heaven and says, hey, go into all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teach them the things I taught you and all those things. And, and so they start doing this. They start getting filled with the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit. They go out and they do different things. And one of the places that's recorded is some, uh, quite extensively, is actually the book of, uh, place of Ephesus. And Paul gets to go there, and it's kind of on his journey. There's kind of some interesting stories that happen. First of all, he comes across, he's just kind of traveling by foot while some other people are going by sea. He decides to take the end road, the Silk Road, if you will. And he comes along, and he's riding, uh, kind of not riding along, but he's walking along and doing these things, and comes across some believers. And in those believers, uh, he finds out, he says, hey, are you guys filled with the Holy Spirit? And they go, what are you talking about? You know, we've been baptized, but we don't have, uh, we have the baptism of John, as in like John the Baptist, but we don't have uh, the baptism that you're talking about. What are you talking about? So he, Paul baptizes them, they've got the Holy Spirit, and he goes, he stays with them to teach them. He stays with them about three months in the city of Ephesus. And so he's teaching and doing things. He must have seen some good stuff was going on, but there were some people that just said, eh, you don't really, I don't know about this. And so they started maligning him publicly. And so he actually leaves them. But he actually continues on preaching and going to, there's a lecture hall actually in Ephesus where you could go in and learn different things. And Paul actually goes there day in and day out and preaches the gospel. And it starts really making a big difference. People hear it and they're starting coming to faith. And he does this for two whole years, right? So you can imagine all Paul's journeys and stuff. He's actually based in Ephesus for two years, preaching the word day in and day out at this lecture hall. Well, while he's doing that, God's doing all sorts of miraculous things. There's stuff like his just pieces of clothing People are taking his pieces of clothing and bringing it to other people, and people are being healed. So there's all these kind of miraculous things going on around Paul. The sick are being healed. Demons are being uh, like, passed out of people, if you will. And not only this, but there's this interesting story where uh, some people get a hold of this, and they go, huh, well, in the name of Jesus and by his you know, disciples like Paul and his disciples, these demons are being driven out. So they start running around, and so they start, without authority, going up to people that are quote-unquote demon-possessed, and they start saying to them, in the name of Jesus and his disciples, Paul, we cast you out, right? And they don't really have authority to do this or been given authority to do this or any backing of the church or the disciples. And so what ends up happening is that one of them finally stands up and goes, I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know you, and then beats them really hard. And so they come back and everybody sees them all beat up and everybody gets super scared. 
Because they realize, oh, wow, Jesus and Paul actually mean something, right? And so the story happens, and God starts doing this great big work in Ephesus. And all these people are coming into Jesus Christ, following the way. Of course, when you start following the way, there's a slight problem. And that is, if you follow the way, you don't follow the not way, right? So if you start following the way, what I mean by that is all the different shrines and the, the gods, and there were all sorts of god temples that were a part of Ephesus. But there was one specifically that was very, very big. And his name, or its name that it was, was Artemis. Now, you may know this from the Greek Artemis, but that is not Artemis of the Ephesians. They had a very unique Artemis. And so the rest of the Greek and Roman world sort of knew this other Artemis. But this was Artemis of the Ephesians. It was the deity, the, the very protector of the city itself. And in fact, it looked very unusual, which we'll see. Oh, actually, it's already there. See, in just a minute. So on the left here, you're like, what am I looking at, right? <laughs> this is a depiction, a statue of Artemis. And in fact, what happens in that book of, of Acts is that in chapter 19, Paul's preaching, the people are coming to Jesus, and all of a sudden, the people that make the shrines, the metal workers, if you will, they come, and they start getting a riot. They start rioting up the people. They start losing all their money, and they notice that Artemis, who's the protector of Ephesus, the very God that we serve, and if you ever look back in history, whenever the temple gets destroyed, they rebuild it, but even when the Romans or anybody offers to help them, then the Persians, they go, nope, this is our God, we're doing this ourselves, and it was a very uniting factor. In fact, um, it was very different. So if you ever look at the Greek version of Artemis, very, very different. But you can see there's like balloon things, there's animals all over, and there's headdresses and all sorts of things going on. But in Ephesus, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was actually the temple to Artemis. This is big, huge, you know, God for the city. This is big, huge things. You don't, this is the sacred cow, if you will, of the Ephesians. You can do anything you want, but don't mess with Artemis. This is our God for our people, our thing. Oh, we own it, or it owns us, or whatever you want to word it. And this is us. Don't mess with it. And Paul, preaching the gospel, the lordship of Jesus Christ, people go, eh, Artemis. So they stop coming to the places of worship. They start, stop buying shrines, if you will, and making them in the metalwork for their houses and their public worship or their private worship. They stop going to the temple of Artemis. You can imagine this. And so the, one of the shrine makers gets all the people riled up. There's actually a big riot. And they come, and they actually are going to go come after Paul, get the city, and actually riot, and, and come after the Christians. And they actually get to the, the, the Colosseum, not Colosseum, but the, their amphitheater, if you will, their theater place. And uh, it ends up the, the city clerk, if you will, stands up and says, I'm going to charge you all with rioting if you don't stop. They're not destroying the temple. They're not doing anything. Leave them be, right? And in fact... They calm down, and when they get almost charged with this, they end up calming down. But the people and the church was strong, a very strong church. And Paul was very close-knit with them. He'd been there two years. They knew him. They, they preached with him. They, they saw him preach and lived his life and knew who he was. And so when Paul goes on in his journeys, this is a, a really deeply connected church with Paul. Like he, it's his people, you know what I'm saying? Like He didn't necessarily start the church, but he, uh, he was part of their life and part of their people for quite some time. Now, the other thing to know about when Paul writes this, he mentions numerous times in the book of Ephesians that he's in chains, that he's a prisoner. And in fact, a couple different times at the end, he even asks, he says, hey, pray for me, because in my chains for Christ. Now, sometimes you can kind of take Paul and what he's saying, and maybe he's saying, oh, I'm just a, metaphorically a prisoner for Christ. But the wording that he uses time and time again in this book, I don't think it's metaphorical. I think he's literally in jail, if you will. There, there was not like a prison kind of thing back then. You were in jail and... You waited basically for your trial, and then you were basically either executed or honored or whatever at that time. You didn't really just stay in jail, but he's waiting his trial. And while he's waiting his trial, he's, you know, the other Christians are coming alongside him and, and 
encouraging them, being with them, bringing food, bringing blankets, all these different things. And as they're, they're meeting with them, um, they write a letter. Again, it's not cheap. Christians pulled their money together, they hired the scribes, if you will, or even maybe some of them were scribes themselves by this point, and they're doing it pro bono, but it was, they had to get all the materials and all these different things, and they sat with Paul, and they recorded this letter to the Ephesians. And one of the most intriguing things about this book, when he writes it, Paul, in this verse right here, verse 3.13, he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. In other words, Paul, right before this, he said, I'm a prisoner of Christ and different things like that. He offers him words of encouragement. But I think the reason why he's writing this book is because he knows this church, knows him very well. He loves this church, and they love him. They, they have a deep relationship with each other. He knows that they've gotten word he's, he's now in prison. Right? He's in chains. He's under, going to be coming up to trial, which who knows what happens in his life during that time. And so he writes this book, not only at the beginning, he offers all sorts of words of encouragement and writes them to remind them of the gospel and what it means and how great it is and the amazing acts of God in their, in their life and other people's life and what God's up to. Do not forget that. But in this middle part of the book, he stops and he remembers this moment. I don't want you to be discouraged because of my suffering, which are for you and for your glory. So Paul goes on in that moment right after that, and he starts describing to them, if you're not going to be discouraged, what does that mean? What does that look like? And it is kind of one of those kind of interesting things to think about. When you're leaders, right, the leaders that are good, right, that actually are doing the word, or the good things in the world, whenever they suffer big setbacks, or whether they're, maybe they're even persecuted, or whether just things are going totally wrong, right, and nothing in their own, you know, their own effort, if you will, but when you see them just go sideways, what do Christians do? Right? And Paul's word for the Christians is, hey, when your leaders get just upset by the world and the waves of cares of the world just come and just overflood their, their boat, if you want to start sinking, right? But they're still being faithful to the Lord. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. The Lord is still working it. And if you look at Paul's writing and what he's writing to the Ephesians, what he tells them to do, he wants to encourage them. Don't be discouraged. In fact, if you're not going to be discouraged and you're going to continue on, Here's what I want you to do. And so that first part of the book, again, he reminds them all the greatness and goodness of God. Kind of this turning point where he reminds them of, you know, tells them about the chains and all that, but he reminds them, don't be discouraged. Here's what I want you to do. And there's a bunch of therefores after this. And so, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. He's going to spend the rest of the book telling and explaining to the specifically for the Ephesians, what you need to do to live out this life. Of course, those words that were for the Ephesians are also for us here today, and that's what we'll spend our time kind of just focusing in on for these moments here. But again, Paul is in prison. He's writing to them, and he wants them to know, hey, I'm suffering. There's bad things going on. But as for you, don't be discouraged. As for you, live, continue to live that life. You have been encouraged to do so, the life worthy of the calling that you have now been called to. And so not only does he remind them about that prisoner part, but then he reminds them these different things. The very first thing he tells them to do is actually in verse uh, 4.11, he tells them, I'm sorry, 4.3, I rest right there. Uh, he tells them, I want you to have unity. I want you people, you Ephesians, be united together in this love. Have the bond of peace with each other as best you can to your ability. Now, of course, Paul would not sacrifice certain things of, you know, 
views of Jesus or things like that, but he's telling, hey, Christians, for you that are living up, try as best as you can to reach out to one another, hold on to one another, to have that unity of Jesus Christ, and especially for, again, this is a time where Jews and Gentiles are, are all coming to the faith, and there's people from all different places, people speaking all sorts of different things, people coming from you know, Artemis and worship of Artemis to now trying to figure out how do you worship Jesus, right? There's all sorts of issues, all sorts of hurdles to come across, all sorts of things. People just don't know how to worship properly or to act properly. Paul's saying, grab onto each other. Hold on to each other, because Jesus Christ is still at work. Don't give up on that. So church today, even Jesus, or Paul's words to us, would be, hey, whatever you're going through, hold on as best you can to each other. Not only this, but he reminds them, hey, not only this, but you need to hold on to each other, not only for the practical purpose of being united in Jesus, like I told you to, but also the fact that Jesus has given each of us different gifts. And so even though there's a unity, there's also this differentiation, right, that each of us have different gifts that God has blessed us with. And he reminds these Ephesians, hey, people are pointed to different things, but be together. You're, you're different people, but you're called to work together. For each of you have different strengths and different weaknesses, and you can cover each other's weaknesses in the gospel of Christ by all relying on your strengths together and what God has called you to do. And then he tells them, don't live like you used to. So if you're not going to be ashamed of Paul and his, his prison, if you will, if you're not going to be discouraged, one of the things you got to do is you can't live like you used to. He says, live in darkness like you were when you were Gentiles, in verse 417. And one of the verses that really caught me of this, you know, there's different verses that catch you different parts of life, but where I, I just look at this, our world that we live in where, you know, so much entertainment goes on and so much, it feels like so much of time, of, of people's time, especially the different generations, especially younger generations, so much of that time is just built on entertainment. But in 419, hear these words of the gospel, or the, the writer that is, Paul, writing to this church. He says these words, and actually I'm going to start in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of ignorance that was in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now listen to what this is. he says. Because of the, he's talking about these hardened of hearts. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have themselves been given over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity and the continual lust for more. So he's using this idea of like, they just oversensitize themselves, they over-sensualize themselves in all sorts of ways, and they lost the losing and hardening of the heart. In so many ways, I think that really challenges us. You know, when we entertain ourselves or we do you know, consume entertainment, you got to be careful, right? I mean, as Christians, we got to be guarded. Truly, it's okay and probably a godly thing that some of our entertainment that we would stop and say, this is not doing good things in my life. And to leave it behind and to move on from it. I know uh, I've been surprised as just kind of flipping through, finding stuff for the kids. Occasionally you find something on, on uh, Prime Video or whatever, and it's like, what is that? <laughs> and the Spirit of God's like, don't even open that, right? You know? Because there's a part of you that goes, what is, what am I looking, like, I don't even understand what I'm doing. Like, I mean, there's that curiosity killed the cat kind of thing that wells up inside you. And you're like, you just know in the spirit of God, no. Like, whatever this, this thing is that's being proclaimed here is something to grab my attention is not good and edifying and beneficial for the soul. In fact, it's going to do the exact opposite. If I just kind of consume it without being guarded, it's going to actually harden my heart. And I'm going to continually just be hardened of heart into this, pains of this world, and the things that God's trying to mold my heart to do become harder and harder for God to help me to see that. So we have to finally sometimes be broken and for God to kind of piece it back together. 
But be careful, again, as Paul says in these words, he, the Gentiles in Ephesus was like any other city back in the day. There's all sorts of sensuality going on all around them when you walk around town. Paul says, don't be part of that. That is the way you were. You've been called to life. And the curiosity that killed the cat kind of pops up inside you. You have the courage and strength to say, nope, I'm going to choose life. I'm going to choose my path. I'm choosing the path that Jesus Christ has for me, and the path that leads to life. Not only that, but he says in uh, 4.5.1, he reminds them this too. He reminds them, imitate God, right? If you want to not be discouraged, imitate God. And it's so interesting that when he starts talking about this very practical part of what it means to imitate God, he starts defining it in negative terms. So don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then he just, he says, rather, you know what the, the blank is that he fills it in with? The imitating God aspect? Be thankful. Actually, it's really simple, right? He says, be thankful. In other words, if you want to be not discouraged, one of the things Paul's telling you right here is be thankful in your life. Be thankful. Remember what God has done in your life. Remember what it means to be part of your church family and your family and all the blessings of your life to give thanks to God. And in so doing, not only will you not become discouraged, but you actually live the life according to the will of the gospel in your life. Paul goes on and he says a couple other things that are worth every moment to, to share here. And just a few more is that he says to them in 515, he says, make use of every opportunity. You don't waste it. In other words, he's talking about all the good that you can do in your life and all the good that's always right before you. Take that opportunity and do it. Even called church. I know I'm in prison. I know I'm in chains. But you still have an opportunity. Use it, church. And he encourages them to do so. And then maybe one of the most unique things about Paul as he was sharing this, and it kind of goes with that unity idea, but he says these words in 521. He says, submit to one another. Now, we are Americans. Let's just fess up. We like independence, right? Let's fess it up, right? Come on, church. You're looking at me like, I don't Come on. We're, we're, we are Americans. We love our independence. We love our freedom. We love our ability to choose our own path. Submission is one of those things that comes very, very, very hard to us. In fact, we rebel and buck against it. It is that you know, wild horse part of us that when God tries to put the bridle on us, we are just kicking around, and, and we're the rodeo people, right, when that goes on. But God says very distinctly right, to us, and what Paul is saying to us is submit to one another. And in those submissions, he also he offers three visual aids, if you will, to remind specific things that were going on in the church of Ephesus. Now, I have to say this with caution because you've got to read Paul beyond just Ephesians. You've got to read Paul in his other books as well. And so one of the things you'll see that's unique to Paul is he will say this. He'll, he'll, he'll say these things like, hey, you know right now you are in, in the power structure of the world. This person is less powerful than this person. What he will tell the person with less power, he will say, hey, you know what? Do the things the world kind of expects you to do. Show goodness and honor. And the world will go, huh, you know, this person's not bucking the system. And then, but he turns around and he says to the person who's powerful, he says, Oh, by the way, pour out your life and treat the other person like they're equal with you, right? And so he, he has this kind of thing that he doesn't just come out there and say, all right, let's just do away with slavery, for instance. He actually tells the slave, hey, do what you're supposed to do to earn respect by your master. Treat your master as if you're treating the Lord. He turns around and he says to the master, he says, oh, by the way, don't forget this is your brother. And God shows no partiality between each two of you. you he happens to be slave and you happen to be the master, but don't act like it, right? And in fact, later on in one of the other books, and Philemon, Paul actually goes out of the way to remind the person who owns a slave to say, hey, just so you know, I have the authority to order you to the slave free. I'm not going to do that, wink, wink. But you know the right thing to do, right? <laughs> and so you see this kind of, that Paul sees a grander vision 
And what he's kind of painting right here, but he says in the same way that there's this time and place, that God's kind of doing and working all these different things, but yet in this moment, there's a way to earn a righteousness, if you will, for those who are in less powerful positions to do the right thing and to honor, and those that are powerful to give away their authority, if you will, at the same time. And so you can see this as he talks about husbands and wives, and that would have, would have meant to the Ephesian church. He talks about children and parents. He talks about slaves and masters. I mean, each one, again, he says, one who would be considered the weaker, do what you're supposed to do. And then the one that would be considered the stronger, he says, act like Jesus. But you all remember what Jesus did. He did what this picture did right here. Next slide. off his outer garment, took on the role of a servant, washed with his own disciples' feet. So Paul says, hey, you powerful people, do that with the other partner in your relationship. Take off that outer garment. Final thing he tells them to, he wants to give them imagery. And I think it's so telling that uh, at the very final part of this, he gives them this imagery of the armor of God. If you ever heard of the armor of God, this is another BBS thing that's really popular, right? And so you have the armor of God. Now, what's very unique about this is there's only one weapon, right? So you got, you know, you got the armor, you got the helmet, and all these different things. And, well, the one I always like the best is the, the, the shield because uh, it says to put out the flaming arrows. And that, one of the things that's unique about there is the Romans actually had a couple of different types of shield. But one of them, you doused in water. It was leather covered, so you didn't have the, the shield, but the top of it was leather. You doused it in water. And so when they would ever fire arrows at you, you just literally just put your shield up. It didn't matter if it was filled with tar or all that stuff, because it actually wouldn't catch your shield on fire or do any damage. And so Paul reminds him, hey, you have a shield, right? But the weapon is the word of the Lord. In other words, the very words of the Lord, but also the, the scripture, if you will, the, the being and the purpose of God in your life. And so Paul reminds him, hey, I'm a prisoner. There are all these spiritual forces that are coming after us, but your fight. Put all these other things for your defense. But your fight beyond what you see with your eyes. Fight is a whole other world of principalities, evil and darkness. You don't even understand. And the only weapon you have against that is the very word of God itself. And so equip yourself with it. Be in that word of God. And the final thing Paul wants to remind them is this. And I find it so unique. At the very end of the book, he does exactly what you would probably do if you ever have a leader that's in a lot of trouble. In 619, he offers these words. He says, pray also me. Kind of interesting, you left that to the end of the book, right? Hey, I'm in chains. Hey, I want you to do all these things. Hey, I want you to, like, you know, do all this stuff. Oh, by the way, yeah, pray for me. <laughs> right? It always comes off that way. But it's interesting, his prayer that he asks. And for other words, you would think someone who is a prisoner for Christ would ask for, the, ask his church, hey, pray for me, Ephesians, because you know how good it is when we can go around and talk in the lecture halls and God does amazing things. And so pray for me to be released. He doesn't, doesn't ask that at all. Listen to what he asks for. Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare fearlessly as I should. And he goes on to end the letter. In other words, Paul said, pray for me, but hey, truly church, it's not about the chains that I'm in, it's about the gospel. Paul was willing to lay down his life and, and all these different things, which we see, of course, even in other parts of Scripture when he's about to truly go before the, the you know, final days of his verdict. But you see Paul in his life, and he says, pray for me, but specifically, 
doesn't even pray for relief to suffering. His prayer is that this would be a microphone, a megaphone, if you will, for him to declare the goodness of God. Gentiles all over the earth, including those in Palestine. And so when you look at this book, this book that Paul writes to his dearly beloved church, those that he spent time with, that he worked alongside with, that loved and cared for him, and he cared for them, and he kept in touch with them. They'd send, of course, I'm sure, other correspondence back and forth, or whenever somebody would go on his behalf and talk with them, even though he was somewhere else, he writes this letter. That they would not be discouraged. Even in tough times, they would continue on with their hand at the flag and do the very things that God had called them to. So church, if you're feeling like it's hard times, if you're feeling like things are going awkward, guess what, God, what Paul calls you to do? The hand of the flag. Do what you're called to do. God will take care of the rest. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your word. God, as we think about people and places and real things that took place, God, we just can only imagine what Paul's life must have meant to those Ephesians that he was in Mark. And the God that he, day in and day out, preached not only the word among them, but I'm sure, Lord, there were so many aspects of them asking him questions and understanding, and how, Lord, they must have seen his very action and his very life, his very heart in front of them to you. God, we know we live in hard times in different ways, but one the good thing that we give praise for is that our leaders do not suffer jail time unless they deserve it, God, but at this point, Leaders, especially those that are glorifying and praising your name, at least in the United States of America, God, that we're able to do so freely. We're thankful for that. So God, help us in even these times of what seems hard, but also, God, also when we compare it to Paul's times, in so many ways, they're also easier. Help us not to become complacent in claiming your word. Not be discouraged when we come across hard times. But God, keep hand of that flag and sow the seeds of your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.